Whether it's food or leisure or people or experiences or some other category, I want to ask you a question about one of those things. And the question is, what do you crave? What do you crave? What do you involuntary impulse want? What's the thing that involuntarily sends a signal to your brain that you must have it? And you must have it now. It could be a sinful thing, a vice. It could be amoral, kind of neutral. Or it could be especially spiritually edifying or or godly. What's your fix? You see, we're all addicted. We're all addicts. It's the way God made us. You can't not want. It's part of the hardwired aspect of our creatureliness that God made us with a wanter. And the problem is that sin has broken our wanter. What we want is is wrong. But not wanting is not an option. And I want to try to show in today's passage why I believe that we could say this and it be biblically faithful. To be addicted to anything other than Jesus is sin. That's a hard line to take because there's a lot of good things in God's good world. And there are some things that are necessary to living in it, like food. But food is actually the example Paul uses to say that even that can be in the way of your relationship with Christ. So necessary things that we can't live without also have to be things that don't master us. But they're mastered by the grace of Christ through us. Well, since we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians today, I want to say just a quick word to the parents and the adults that uh, I didn't write the book. I'm the mailman. And uh, we are yet again, for at least the third week in a row, dealing with territory that's not G-rated. Now, I've prayed, and uh, as recently as just a moment ago, prayed again, that the Spirit would enable me to preach with biblical discretion, knowing that we have a lot of young ears in our gathering. And I'm also praying that at the same time, and without any conflict to what I just said, that, that we would not shy away from anything in God's good word. And another way to frame the kinds of things that we're going to talk about today is to say it uh, like this. There's not a better place on earth than the family, nuclear family, moms, dads, and children, and the church family, the people of God, to learn about the kinds of things and the details of life than in the safe confines of of what we're doing today. This is the place where we need to learn because as we all know, the world is very ready to teach us what they think about these matters. So may the sermon be used of the Spirit to help shape older ones and younger ones alike more into the image of Christ. Well, with that in mind, today's passage is going to show us that the most satisfying portion the most satisfying source. The thing that we, if we were rightly minded, would crave the most is a person. And his name is Jesus. I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to see this in God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll pick up the reading in verse 12. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. I want you to listen very carefully, even if you don't have a Bible with you. Listen with all your heart. This is God's Word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach. And the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. 
Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is the Lord's Word. Join me once again as we ask for God's help as we consider this passage. Father, my prayer, our prayer, is that you would take the lid off of our sanctification. You would show us how satisfying Jesus is. Do it for the young and do it for the old. Do it for those who are not yet in Christ and those who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Show every heart how satisfying Jesus is. We ask this for your glory in his name. Amen. Over the course of the last uh, few weeks, some of you have been doing what uh, we've been trying to do a little bit of around our house, and that is the spring cleaning. The weather warms up, and we all of a sudden get a bunch of ideas of projects we want to accomplish. And uh, one of the small ones that I've been needing to do for a long time, and there's no good reason to wait for spring to do it, is to get the hinges on all the doors at our house to stop squeaking. And all you've got to do is spray a little WD-40 on them and it's done. You know, you feel like you've accomplished a monumental task by taking about three seconds of your time to do a little project. And hinges on doors serve a purpose. And that is so that we can obviously open and close them. And this passage, verses 12 to 20, is the hinge of the book of 1 Corinthians. The first section has had two parts, and we've dealt with that. I'm not going to repeat it now. The next section, starting in chapter 7, opens a series of issues that the church at Corinth had sent a letter to Paul through Chloe's people for him to address. Before he gets to those issues, starting in chapter 7, he puts a hinge on which the whole book turns. In fact, the hinge lists out the issues that he's going to deal with. Let me show you. Verse 13, he speaks about food. Chapter 8 is where Paul discusses, using food, the issue of Christian liberties. In verse 15, Paul says, you are a member of the body of Christ. Paul unfolds this more fully in chapter 12. In verse 19, he says the Holy Spirit dwells, not chapter 3, just in the, uh, in the whole church collectively, but in chapter 6, verse 15, uh, pardon me, verse 19, the Holy Spirit dwells in individual believers, which is a truth he's going to unpack more fully in chapters 12 to 14. In verse 14, he speaks about the resurrection of our body. Our physical body will be raised from the dead, and he deals with that issue in the glorious resurrection chapter, chapter 15. Then in verse 13, again, he, he speaks of this issue of God destroying certain things. God will do away with your stomach and with food, uh, the text says. And in chapter 7, he uses the issue of God destroying things to talk about marriage, which we're going to look at next week. Easter Sunday is going to be a sermon on uh, singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage. Uh, instead of doing something unusual, out of the ordinary, we're just going to show all the guests what it's like to just go to church every week, so... Pray for next Sunday's sermon, uh, 1 Corinthians 7. But then he, he deals with that in uh, verse 13. But then in chapter 7, he applies that destruction language to, to, to issues related to marriage. And then in chapter 15, 
uh, it's a really key aspect of his resurrection theme. So if we understand verses 12 to 20, this is what I'm trying to say. If we get it, then really we've gotten in a microcosm the rest of the book. But we also don't have to fret too much if we don't fully, fully, fully understand it all today because he's going to keep unpacking it in the days to come. Make sense? It's the hinge chapter. There's four parts to the passage. There's a big part, and then there's three supporting parts. The big part is the premise, the thesis. And Paul makes two assertions, two big points in his thesis, and that's verses 12 to 14. Then he argues in support for those two huge assertions, and he does it three times. The first one is in verse 15. The second one is in verses uh, 16 to 18. And the third supporting argument is in verses 19 to 20. So one more time, verses 12 to 14 is the, is the, the point, the thesis. Then verse 15, verse 16 to 18, Verse 19 to 21, he supports with three different arguments the thesis that he offers. There's two assertions I said in this thesis. Again, it's verses 12 to 14. See if you can hear them as I read those verses again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Oh, I got it, Pastor Jordan. Two assertions, no problem. They are there. And they're not really hidden. Before I just try to draw them out and, and hold them up for you, I want to say, First, one thing, I can hear Clive Cranford's voice reading this passage. I don't know if there's another passage of the Bible we talked to about more than these verses. How our body, I'm talking about from our head to our toes, is perfectly tailored by God as his most treasured instrument to resound his praise and to show his glory. We talked a lot about this passage. It's very precious to me for that reason. Claude, those of you who don't know, discipled me until he died in the year 2000. The second thing I want to say about it is that it's a very challenging passage because interpreters try to figure out what's Paul saying here? Is all of this stuff in verses 12 to 14, like, thus saith the Lord? Is this the Holy Spirit writing through Paul all propositional truth, or is Paul kind of quoting some slogans that the Corinthians like to use and then correcting them with gospel information and gospel truth? Well, actually, I believe it's the second. Instead of every phrase of this passage being, thus saith the Lord, believe it this way, I believe what Paul's doing is throwing back at the Corinthians some things that they like to say in order to justify their sin, and then he's attacking it with gospel truth to show them how they ought to think and live in light of the gospel. Now, there are some who disagree with what I just said, slogans versus propositional truth. But you may be encouraged, as I was this week, to find, as Anthony Thistleton wrote in his detailed commentary, quote, there can be no question that the initial clause of verse 12 represents a quotation used as a slogan by some in the city of Corinth. No question? How can you say such a thing? Because Thistleton then went on in his commentary to show 27 different commentators throughout church history who agreed. And there are gobs of others. Here's the first slogan. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me. I'm free to do anything. Everything, the NIV translates it, everything's permissible. There's no limits on my freedom in Christ. Jesus has paid for me, now I have liberty. That's the first slogan. The second is verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. 
Now, I said there are two major assertions in Paul's thesis. Let me tell you what those are and just try to show you those. Assertion number one. Christians do have liberty. But according to verse 12, it's freedom to do what is beneficial. Not just what's allowable. Obviously, we're not free to sin. But there are many things that are neutral, amoral, They're not necessarily sinful in and of themselves. They're just not profitable. And so what Paul's saying, yeah, you have Christian liberty. But you know, don't you, that Christians don't see how close to the line of sin they can get without falling over. Christ has set us free from sin so that sometimes we often give up our liberties so that we can do the thing that's most profitable. He uses the word beneficial. That's the first assertion. Second, our risen Redeemer claims lordship over all of our life. And specifically, how we use our body during this lifetime. Who put those eyes in your head? Who put that tongue in your mouth? Who put those feet on the ends of your legs? How do you use your body And the assertion is, somebody else has a body, a human body, and God raised that body from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's going to therefore raise your body also because Christ is the first fruits of all His people. As He was raised, so we're going to be raised. So, His resurrection, if He's your Lord, lays claim over how we use our body. So assertion number one, you are free. You're free in Christ, but you're free to do what is beneficial, what is profitable. And second assertion, the risen Redeemer claims lordship over how we use our body during this lifetime. Just a quick comment on both of those assertions, and then we'll get to the three arguments Paul makes in the passage to support these assertions. Assertion number one, what does Christian liberty actually look like? What does freedom in Jesus look like? Well, our world is so confused about Christianity in large part because of Christians. And as we said last week from the passage that we were looking at, it's no wonder that a lot of people don't want to follow Jesus because they're just looking at Christians saying, if that's what Christianity is like, I don't want any part of that. So what does Christian freedom look like? Does it look like living however we please, then going to Jesus' heaven when we die? Not at all. True liberty, true freedom is not doing whatever you please. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, and many of you I know have thought about it many times. But it's worth thinking about again or for the first time. If God let you do everything you wanted with no limit, you would not only destroy yourself, you would implode the entire world. Your impulses are sinful. Your wanter, as I said at the beginning, is broken. So true Christian liberty is not doing whatever you want to do than going to Jesus' heaven when you die. That's not freedom. That's actually slavery. True liberty is mastering ourselves. Putting self as a slave to do what is beneficial, what is profitable. Not only what is permissible, can I do it is not the question. Should I do it? Should I? Paul's not dealing with the issue of whether or not it's sinful. To eat food is not a sin. He's not dealing with the issue of is it sinful. He's asking the question, is it sanctifying? Will it make you more like Christ? Christians alone, nobody else can do this. Christians alone can use all their faculties, all their humanity for beneficial living, profitable living, sanctifying living. Now I want to say it a little provocatively, and I mean what I'm about to say. There are a lot of Christians in this room. I count myself to be one of them. I believe that Jesus has redeemed me that there's no condemnation for me in Christ, and I could say that just as positively about so many of the people in front of me. But I want those of you who are not yet Christians to understand something. 
I could close my Bible, walk out of this door, and commit any sin that any other person is capable of committing. There's really no impediment between me and a life of sin. But I want you to understand something. Please listen. Please listen. With all my heart, I'm begging you to listen to me. Not one lost person, zero of them, can march into the presence chamber of God, lay their heart before Him as His child, and ask Him to fill them with His Holy Spirit and use them for His glory and allow us to join God in delighting in Jesus, which is what we're made for. Do you see the difference? Any Christian can commit any sin, but not one lost person can enjoy the God who's made us. And Paul's not saying, is it sinful? Okay, if not, then go do it. He's saying, is it sanctifying? Is it going to make you more like Jesus? That's his first assertion. Number two, his second assertion is, Let me first say this. There are questions about verse 13. And the question is, were the Corinthians being tempted to embrace a heretical view, like pre-Gnosticism, if that word means anything to you? Flesh is bad, spirit is good, so you can do whatever you want with your body because that's just going to go down to the grave one day, but God saved your soul and your spirit's going to go to heaven one day. And so flesh is bad, spirit is good, you can do whatever you want with your body so long as you love Jesus with your heart. All right, that, that's one of the questions about uh, is that something the Corinthians had bought into? And the reason that question arises makes perfect sense to me because it seems that they're saying, now look, Paul, I have a stomach. We all have a stomach in our body. And sometimes that stomach involuntarily sends a signal through our nervous system up to our brain that we're hungry. We don't have to tell our stomach to send the signal. It's just an impulse. It's a craving. It's a natural thing that's hardwired into our physical frame, and it can't be bad. So food is for that stomach, and that stomach is for food. But God's going to do away with those. Similarly, we have other involuntary impulses. Now here's why I'm going to speak with a little biblical discretion. post pubescent desires. They just happen. You don't have to turn the switch on. You don't have to turn the switch off. There's obviously things that you could do that you should not that would trigger the switch. But it's just part of the makeup of humanity. So if our hunger impulse is not bad, then maybe our other impulses are also not bad. And just as we indulge in food to satiate hunger, so also we should indulge in some kind of activity that would satiate these other passions. And like food is eliminated from the body, and there's no real consequence to having had a meal because we'll just get hungry again later, so also there's no real consequence to sexual immorality. You see what's going on? Okay. Paul's assertion, Paul's assertion, even though the Corinthians may have been making the argument that food enters the stomach and then is eliminated, so also sexual gratification is a natural impulse like hunger and is an act that satisfies a temporary craving without any long-term, eternal, consequential detriment, Paul's not writing this letter in a vacuum. You've got to remember that in the city of Corinth, it's a port city, it's a major city in the first century. It also was the home to the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, which some calculate that at the time of the writing, the temple of Aphrodite would have employed no less than a thousand temple prostitutes who made their living day after day after day by men coming to consort with them. And Paul uses the word pornea, from which we obviously get our word pornography. He uses the word pornea in this chapter 
as a sinful expression of immorality that is to be avoided, but why Paul says we are to avoid it is his assertion. Assertion one, you're free to do what's beneficial. Assertion two, you should avoid pornea, sexual immorality. Here's two reasons right in the text that you should avoid that. Verse 13, your body is for God. Your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. This is singular. Soma, your individual person, your body. Just like your stomach is made for food, Paul says, yes, 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 I'll go with you there. Your body is not made for immorality. I'm not going with you there. It's made for God. God designed the stomach. God designed food and calories because they're a natural fit for each other. God designed your physical frame and body, not for immorality, but for God. God tailor-made you for God. Just like food satiates your physical hunger, God satisfies everything about your body if you'll give yourself to Him. That's His two big assertions. He supports these assertions with two arguments because He already knows the Corinthians like to argue. So they're going to come back at Him, so He gives them three supporting arguments for these two big assertions. First, His first argument is in verse 15. Each of the three arguments begin with the same phrase, do you not know? So verse 15, verse 16, verse 19. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? But this isn't the first time he's used that language in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Verse 15 is actually the sixth time. And then the seventh, and then the eighth time, right here in this little passage. So this is a a repeating pattern for Paul. Verse 15, argument number one. Do you not know that your body is a member of Christ? The reason he can tell you these two assertions is supported by this truth. Your body. You're free to do what's beneficial. That's why Jesus bought you. And God is enough for your body. You don't need illicit sexual anything. Because, number one, your body is a member of Christ. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So the argument is, do you not know that your body is a member of Christ? That little phrase, do you not know, obviously means that the Corinthians ought to have known this. This is something they have talked about. Now, can I just do a little bit of real talk as uh, kind of vague and with discretion as I know how? Our world, and let's not just talk general big out there, that big old ball of dirt called the globe. Let's talk about our world, our city, our community this neighborhood, the families in which we were raised, our world is being swept away in a deluge, a flood of sexual immorality. And God has not minced words. The only, only, only form of intimacy that God approves is inside the confines of biblical marriage between one man and one woman. That shouldn't be controversial. But in our day, there are few things that are more controversial to say. I didn't write the the message. I'm delivering the mail. Do you not know that your members are bodies of, uh, your bodies are members of Christ? As I said, this is the sixth, do you not know? It comes in chapter 3, verse 16, 5, verse 6, 6, verse 2, verse 3, verse 9, and then here again in verse 15 for the sixth reference. Do you not know that your members are bodies of Christ? The reason he can lay these massive thesis statements, these huge how you should live your life, thus saith the Lord, is because your body is a member of Christ. Now I want to remind you, that Paul believes he's talking to true Christians. 
These aren't lost people. I am not saying that every person here has a body that in a redeemed way belongs to Jesus. Jesus said that if you're not a Christian, you belong to Satan. You are of your father, the devil. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to Christians. And he's laying out this rich and beautiful theology of our union with Christ. Paul would say elsewhere, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We are His. We belong to Him. Body, soul, and mind. So when Jesus saves you, you need to ask yourself this very important question if you're considering giving your life to Christ. When Jesus saves you, He does redeem you. But He redeems all of you. All of you. You can't hold anything back from Him. You must give Him your entire being. Body, soul, and mind. And believers are His doubly. Everybody should owe and does owe the highest allegiance to God because He created you. He made you. He formed you in your mother's womb. He designed you. He wove you together in all the fiber of your being and the beauty of your created personhood. God made you. You therefore owe Him everything. But believers are doubly His. We're not only His by virtue of creation, we're also His by virtue of redemption. We must see our physical bodies, therefore, as an organ of the body of Jesus. And everything we do with our body must be governed by that reality. Listen to the way Romans puts this point. Our bodies are members of Christ. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You know what Paul's saying in Romans. He's saying that these Old Testament sacrifices the goat, the calf, the turtle dove, whatever it was, would be put on the altar in total. And it would be offered as an offering to the Lord. And Paul's saying, do the same thing with your body, but instead of a dead carcass, why don't you voluntarily climb up on the altar and just lay yourself down like Isaac and say, God, you can have all of me even while I live, not just when I die. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Therefore, verse 15, to consort with a prostitute is to unite an organ of Jesus' body with a harlot. And to this notion, Paul has a response. It's the strongest language that he uses anywhere in the whole Bible. He repeats this same phrase in the book of Romans multiple times, especially in chapter 6. And in the Greek, it's me genoite, from which... We get root words for places like Gehenna, the lake of fire, hell. Paul is saying, should I take one of Jesus' organs, my body, and give that to somebody who represents the kingdom of Satan? Sexual immorality, pornea, a prostitute. Paul's response, me genoite. It's Gehenna, no. No, no. It's the strongest language he uses anywhere. And some of you can read between those lines. So argument number one. For these two big assertions. You're free to live any way that's profitable. And number two, your whole body belongs to Jesus who redeemed you. Who was raised from the dead. You're going to be raised from the dead as well. So first argument, don't you know your body's a member of Christ? Second argument. Do you not know that your oneness with Jesus must therefore govern all your moral behavior? Your oneness with Jesus. Our first thought should be, because I belong to Jesus, how then should I approach this situation? Verse 16, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 
This text begins in verse 16 by basing the argument on Genesis chapter 2, specifically verse 24. When Paul writes in verse 16, for he says, the two shall become one flesh, that's a quotation from Genesis 2 which says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's the verse Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 6. And on the basis of that verse, Paul contends that to engage in sexual relations with a prostitute is, quote, to become one body with her. He's not saying that God views every illicit sexual encounter as marriage. It's not what he's saying. He is letting the Corinthians know that there is no such thing as inconsequential sex. Especially if you take that outside the bounds of marriage. Every illicit sexual encounter brings disrepute, not first on you, but on Jesus. Then it's also, verse 18, a sin against your own body. So in verse 15, you're taking a member of Christ and you're giving it to the kingdom of Satan. And in verse 18, you're taking a dagger and committing spiritual suicide. A sin against your own body. You're committing the sin of self-harm by engaging in sexual activity that's not sanctioned by God. Now, none of us need a lesson, especially post-pubescent ones among us, to know why such activity would seem gratifying. Now let's play devil's advocate. If an unbeliever were among us and were given the microphone and were asked to honestly answer the question, is illicit intimacy gratifying? Is it satisfying? I assume 99 out of 100 would say yes. If you asked a Christian the same question and gave them the microphone, I assume perhaps even as many or as high a percentage might at first say yes. But the question is not really, is it gratifying? The question is, what kind of gratification does it bring? The answer is instant gratification. But we would have an entirely different response if we started asking stuff about the avalanche of STDs and the emotional, psychophysical damage that it does to the interior fabric of your identity. The confusion that people begin to have about who they are and whose they are. We would have an entirely different response if we started asking particular, specific questions about the objectification of humans who themselves are fellow image bearers of God Almighty. If we started to ask people who are living like glandular animals, getting in bed with anybody they want to whenever they want to. That's how animals live. If we started asking people some specific questions about that practice, not just is it gratifying, but what of the consequence of long-term results? Paving, for example, your own way to hell, which is what Paul says the consequence would be. You see, short-term and long-term are worth considering in light of the person and work of Jesus who himself was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, who maintained fidelity to God and faithfulness to Him, trusting in the person and power of the Holy Spirit to sustain Him through the mightiest of temptations. You see, everything's not really equal when you start parsing out gratification. Instant, yes. Long term, friends with benefits don't measure out evenly on the ultimate cost-benefit analysis score sheet. Now one more note I want to draw out 
from the verses in the second argument. It's verse 17. The one who joins himself with the Lord, to the Lord, is one spirit with him. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, I've said real talk enough to say, to, to think that I don't need to just keep repeating myself, but here's some more real talk. The reason sinful sexual exploits are attractive, whatever they may be, whatever form they take, the reason they're attractive is because of what they promise. They promise gratification. That's the dangling carrot. This will fulfill you. Another way to say it is satisfaction. That's what sin promises. It promises to satisfy. The particular sin in view in this passage promises not only that sin will satisfy, but sin with another. Or you could just summarize, another will fulfill your deepest need. And the reason that this sin is of such importance for Paul to attack is because, are you ready? It's true. Another will fulfill your deepest need. Do you see why sexual sin is of such grave consequence and such a denial of the core of the gospel? That sin promises that somebody else will satisfy me. That statement is true. It's just not him or her or them. It's him. The demand for our impulses to be satisfied is simply a promise that no other person, no, no matter how intimate they ever become, can ever deliver upon. And I want to say to, a, a word to all of those who are outside the bounds of biblical marriage. Even inside the bounds of biblical marriage, intimacy is not the foundation of it. God forbid any of our spouses ever become maimed or so severely disabled, quadriplegic, something like that, and... Physical intimacy is impossible. That marriage can and should and must still be God-glorifying and satisfying. That's because physical intimacy makes a promise that it can't deliver on. It cannot meet the deepest need of your soul, but that's exactly what it promises. But you want to know what can? Spiritual union. It's the deepest of all possible intimacy. Spiritual union is even deeper than the physical. The desire does not have to go unmet. It can be instantly and eternally gratified with increasing measure. The way this craving is satisfied, and let me underline it, the only way... <laughs> This craving is satisfied is to enjoy communion with Christ. Do you want to know who the most susceptible person to sin in this room is? All of us. Whether you had a great week of quiet times, walking with Jesus, meditating on verses, praying through the Bible and for lost people and sharing the Gospel every waking hour, or whether you've had a terrible week of running from God and indulging in all manner of sin, do you want to know who's more susceptible to sin than the other? Trick question. Everybody. Because this craving for satisfaction never goes away. Though Christ fills our hunger and thirst, He expands our capacity to hunger and thirst, and we must again feast on Him for the satisfaction we were created to enjoy. Unfortunately, even Christians can fall into the trap that says, Jesus does save, and I believe that with every fiber of my being, but He does not satisfy. That's the enemy's lie. If he can't drag you to hell with him and he can't take a Christian there, this is as close to hell as you will ever get if you are in Christ. This is as close to heaven as you will ever get if you are not in Christ. 
And because Satan knows he cannot drag a Christian to hell, he will do everything he can to persuade you that Jesus Christ is not enough for you. That he cannot satisfy you. Nothing could be further from the truth. I hope you know this, and maybe you do. It took me a long time to see it in the Bible, though it's so obviously there. Nobody's going to be married in heaven. Nobody. No sexual gratification in heaven. And nobody will be miserable. Everybody will be filled to the uttermost with the delight of God in God. Endless bliss. Ever craving, ever satisfied. Perfectly complete, needing nothing, constantly pursuing for more enjoyment of the God who saved us for His own glory. That's what verse 17 is reminding us about. You are one spirit with Jesus. You are more intimately connected to Christ than physically intimate human partners could ever possibly provide for you. Jesus Christ alone meets the deep need of your heart and He sustains us in this life, this present evil age where we will not live perfectly, but He does sustain His people to the end to live a life using our body for His glory alone. So there's something you must do. The second argument is, don't you know that your oneness with Jesus must govern all your moral behavior. So I'm talking about union with Christ in the second argument. There's something you must do. Verse 18 says it pretty plainly, doesn't it? Flee immorality. Now, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. This is run. Flee immorality. I didn't ask you if all the people you know are living in an immoral way. I didn't ask you if every relationship you've ever heard of has been nothing but sex outside of marriage. I'm asking you if you have ears to hear your God. He's telling you to run. He's telling you to flee. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul does this two times in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Here in chapter 6, flee immorality. In chapter 10, flee idolatry. The reason you've got to run from these two sinister attacks on the sufficiency of Jesus is because they both try to sell to you the same lie. You can't get close. It's not, is it sinful? It's, is it sanctifying? And we're not trying to live in the gray territory. We're only going toward what's profitable, not what is as close as we can get to sin without falling in. Flee immorality. For you, certainly the teaching of Jesus should apply. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye. Do whatever you have to do. You get away from immorality because it is the tentacles that will wrap you and drag you to hell. Get away from sexual immorality. Paul wants you to know that sexual sin is a self-inflicted wound. It is, quote, sin against your own body. Flee. I do believe that there should be some practical parameters that you pray about seriously and honestly and that you confer with other godly people about. I'm not going to give you a list of to-dos because many of us, like me, like a list, a keepable standard. Tell me what it's supposed to look like and I'll legalistically keep my rules. There's no legalism in this passage. You're free. As long as you fear God with all your heart, you can do anything you want to do. Now, go do anything that's profitable. Go do anything that's beneficial. Go do anything that will make you more like Christ. You make your own list. Check it twice. Pray about it a thousand times. Submit it to other godly people. If you're married, give it to your spouse. Ask for accountability. Draw people into your circle. God's not going to sanctify the fake you. He's only going to sanctify the real you. He knows who you really, really, really are. And that's the only person He's interested in making more like Christ. To be known and to be loved is the most exhilarating place in the universe. Flee immorality. Run from it. Get away from it. Find you some accountability. You will do everything you want to do. And if you want to get away from sin, you'll do it. Flee immorality. So first, Paul supports his 
uh, assertions by saying that your body is a member of Christ. Second, he says that you're united to Jesus. And third and finally, he says in verse 19 and 20, do you not know that you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit bought by Jesus? Therefore, glorify God with your body. It's verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is his eighth rhetorical, do you not know? The third in this passage. In chapter 3, Paul told the church uh, in no uncertain terms that the whole local assembly, the local ecclesia, the church, is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying in chapter 6. Here, he's saying that you, individual Christian, your body is a sanctuary of the Spirit. Verse 19, your body, that's you personally as a Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Verse 15, you're members of Christ. Verse 19, you're the house of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 19, it only makes sense that Paul would say, you're not your own. That's hard language. In our day, especially with the rise of all kind of isms coming out today, and uh, you must play the party line if you want to be in. But it doesn't matter what we claim or are accused of. The question is, who owns you? Nobody owns me. What are you talking about? Well, that may be the case if you answer that way, but you've definitively and clearly answered the question about whether or not you're a Christian. Who owns you? Who owns you? The reason you're free to do what benefits rather than ensnares or enslaves you, assertion number one, to do what's profitable, the reason you're free to do that, and the reason that you must use your body to glorify your risen Redeemer, assertion number two, is because God the Holy Spirit lives in you and He owns you. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to flee immorality. We can make resolutions all day long. We can make lists. We can find accountability groups. We can meet with them every morning of every week. But nothing can give us the power to flee sin except God. We must be united to Him. Now, all those other things are beneficial, and in God's economy, they're part of what He uses to help buttress our trust in Him. But the whole reason we're here this morning is because we're all trying to push each other up toward Him. I can't live your Christian life for you. You can't live my Christian life for me. We can help each other go to Christ. But you need the Holy Spirit. This argument lays the final stone in place to support Paul's assertions in verses 12 to 14. You are not your own. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Now this is the crux of the reason that God saved you. I mean, this is the highest apex and pinnacle The reason that God saved you. Was, you got, have you ever asked yourself this question? Is your salvation mainly for you or mainly for God? You, according to the Bible, are a secondary beneficiary of God glorifying Himself through the redemption of sinners. He saves us for Himself. Do you want to know how I know that? You are not yours. You are not your own. God saved you for God. Salvation is the most radically God-centered act ever. God did all the work all for Himself. To make sinners like me and you trophies of His grace. He doesn't save us because we're lovely. He saves us to make us lovely. To beautify us with His own glory and His redeeming and sanctifying grace. You have been bought with a price. Nobody owns me. As I said a moment ago, you've answered the question definitively about whether or not you're a Christian. You have been bought You're not your own. That's a gut-wrenching reality that in our own land we've gotten where we've gotten 
on the backs of horrific atrocities. Middle Passage, African slave trade, Chattel slavery, Jim Crow, horrific tragedies, dehumanizing people, image bearers of God. Now, to be anachronistic means to take a modern thing and throw it all the way back in the Bible. Slavery in the Bible was not Middle Passage, Chattel slavery situation. Okay? It was not. And all colors of people, melanin, different intonations, were subjected to the slavery you read about in the Bible. That's another sermon for another day. But this is no doubt about it. Slave auction language. No doubt about it. David Garland writes, this language would have been familiar to the Corinthians because Corinth was the major port city on the Mediterranean. And it was the place for slave trafficking. Those who wanted to rescue people from that system would pay a ransom for their liberation at the slave auction. Paying ransom for the liberation of slaves was also a familiar practice in other parts among the ancients and according to the law in Corinth at the time Paul wrote, those who were ransomed from enemies who had captured them in war became the property of the one who paid their liberation. Paul's not writing in a vacuum. One block this way, the street got renamed about four years ago. It's now A.W. Willis. It used to be called Auction Avenue. Three or four more blocks that way, you get to exchange. One block this way, two more blocks that way, you get to court square. Human beings were sold one block that way. MLK Jr. took a bullet for his assassination 15 blocks that way. I'm giving you that to let you know Corinth was a city that knew a lot about slavery. He's not writing in a vacuum. He's talking to people who know the system. Still living in it. And he says to them, without blushing and no apology, God bought you. God paid your liberation price. You don't belong to you anymore. You're owned by God. All of you. Every part of you. All the faculties of your being. When Jesus of Nazareth got on the cross, He didn't get on the cross hoping that one day you might trust Him. He paid for your trust in Him. He took all the decrees of your debt against God. Colossians chapter 2. Every crime you have ever are or will ever commit, He took that whole decree and God carved it into His body and His lacerated wounds and He became your certificate of debt. God nailed Jesus to the cross to pay for you. All your sexual sin. All your illicit use of Christian liberty. All your treating life like it just goes into the body like food and it's eliminated one day and it has no lasting consequence. Everything you've ever done to dishonor God with your body, Jesus honored God with His body so He could take a life of perfect righteousness to a tree outside of Jerusalem and die for the crimes that you and I committed against God. And God calls it. God calls it. God calls it. I don't care if you like it. I'm telling you what God calls it. He paid for you. He bought you. You don't belong to you anymore. You don't get to write the script anymore. It's not yours to decide. He is the arbiter of everything about everything over your life. And if you don't want that Jesus, you don't want Christianity. This is Christianity. You don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. And when you start asking questions, have you ever accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What a foolish question. The question is, has He ever accepted you? 
And on what terms? Because there's only one ground on which God will accept you. You take your filthy self, like many of us have done, and you go to the throne room of heaven and say, I'm the one who killed your son. It was my sin. It was all of my illicit rebellion, sexually, physically, and every other way, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. I'm the guilty party. Would you forgive me? Is there enough mercy in Jesus for a sinner like me? You know what God does? He goes to the filing cabinet. He pulls out the drawer. He shuffles to the T's. He pulls out a certificate. It's got my name on it. It's got my name on it. Except it's not a drawer and files and paper. My name's written in the, in the hand of His Son. He paid for me at Calvary. All the sin I'm going to commit tomorrow, God forbid, Jesus paid for that. You've been bought with a price. David Garland put it well in one sentence. Is everything I've been trying to say for the last five passionate minutes. God now has the title deed to your body. I love that. I love it. Somewhere in my house or my glove box or wherever we keep that stuff, there's a title to my car, the title to my house, got my name on it. I don't own either one of them. I own like a closet in my house. But uh, I'm, wor I'm working on it. But there's a title and a deed. There's a deed for you. Your personhood, your humanity, your soma, your body has a deed. And there's only one of them. And God has it. Do you have, your, do you have the power at your disposal to obey verse 18, flee immorality? Or the power at your disposal to obey the maxims in verse 12, only do what's profitable? On the other side of the coin, never be mastered by anything? The answer is yes. Because of verse 19, the Holy Spirit is in you. Jesus bought you. So that's where Paul ends and I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up too. Therefore. I mean, do you feel like you're in checkmate in the best possible way? Please run me over with what I'm supposed to do now, God. Thank you for buying me. Here's the therefore. Glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. I'm not sure if you noticed it, but each of the three supporting arguments for the two big assertions follow the exact same pattern. Do you not know? Your body. Do you not know? Your body. Do you not know? Your body. Therefore, glorify God with your body. This is the goal of the Gospel. That the all-glorious God who saved you will reap glory from you. This is why you're made... One commentator said, the only goal of Christian existence is to bring glory to God. That's what will satisfy you. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's why when he gives a definition of sin to the Romans, he says sin is not glorifying God. Ephesians 1, he says to that church there that he loved and spent so much time with, in fact, he was there pastoring them when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians. He said, to this end, we who were the first to hope in Christ are to the praise of His glory. And in Philippians 2, Paul tells that little church there that he had spent so little time with that the whole point of the Gospel, the reason Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and the reason that everybody is going to acknowledge that He's Lord because God's raised Him from the dead and put Him at the highest place, the reason every last one of you, and me included, are going to bow our knees to Jesus and say, Curios ace Christos, Jesus Christ is Lord, even that is to the glory of God the Father. So let me ask in closing, in all honesty, why do you live? What's your goal for your body? Do you have a purpose statement for your life? I don't, I'm not looking for a slogan. I'm looking for substance. That's why we say around here, we exist to glorify God. That's it. By treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading His eternal joy, we want to glorify God with all of us, our whole being, and all of us collectively as a local church. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Here's the application. Look to Christ. Please don't tire of hearing that. 
If you have just a moment of mental energy, I trust that it will send you into a lifetime of exhilarating meditation, prayer, and praise. When I say look to Jesus, this is what I mean. Go to eternity past. Did He have a body? No. He didn't have a body in eternity past. Neither does or did the Father, neither does or did the Holy Spirit. The one God, all spirit beings, one God, three persons, no body. No human body. But at conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, took on a body. When I say look to Jesus, this is what I mean. The whole reason He took on a body, we're told in Hebrews chapter 2, is because the children share in flesh and blood, therefore He Himself likewise partook of the same, so that through death He could kill Satan. That's what it's about. And all of His evil tyranny over all the people for whom Jesus died, that's why He took a body. But what did He do with that body after His earthly life? Well, He took it to a cross and it was horrifically mutilated and maimed. Once He was finally stabbed by the Roman's spear after He was already dead, and they took His cadaver and corpse down and they laid it on the ground perhaps. And Joseph of Arimathea came and slung his lifeless corpse over his shoulder and went and put that corpse into a borrowed tomb. What did God do with that body? Did it decay? Did it corrupt? No. Three days later, without any decay, no stench of death, God raised him up again bodily, in a body. And as far as food's for the stomach and the stomach's for food, you know what Jesus did with that body? Is God going to really do away with both of them? Or is this just a Corinthian slogan that lets us get, get away with sexual immorality? Is God going to do away? No. When Jesus was raised from the dead, you know what He did? Had breakfast. Fish. He ate with His disciples. God's not going to do away with your stomach. He's not going to do away with your body. How do we know that? Because He raised Jesus in a body and He is the prototype for what we all will one day be. He ascended bodily, Acts chapter 1. He will forever be incarnate. When we get to heaven, I don't believe you will see God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. You will certainly know and enjoy their presence, but I believe visibly we will see only the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. And you will see the nail prints in His hands, the thorn prints in His brow, the nail prints in His feet, the spear print in His side. You will see His glorified body. Forever incarnate. What's he doing with that body? Glorifying God with it. So when I say look to Jesus, that's what I mean. Look to Jesus so that you can obey the end of verse 19. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Well, for all you patient people, I'll spare you the six other applications. Let's pray together. Father, I do ask that you would do what I prayed at the beginning, that you would take the lid off of our sanctification. And you would make us as much like Jesus as saved sinners can possibly be. Help us, Lord, to help each other. Help us to continue to point each other to Christ. But deeply, deeply within, would you do the work that only you can do. And grant to us the satisfying portion of living in fellowship, sweet communion, with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that we use our whole body like Romans 6 talks about. All the members of our body for the glory of Your name. You alone are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.